but oh, it's yes. a it's a monologue, <laughs> uh, but really enjoyable. Uh, the NCAA, Jay, legalized NIL roughly two years ago. And I want to ask you this, and it's kind of a point-blank question. Everybody's under the impression with collegiate athletics we are moving into super conferences. Um, they've got a new president. Uh, it's an archaic organization, in my opinion. It's 2023, and some of the rules are, are, are insane. Point-blank, Jay, how viable is the NCAA moving forward? I think it's viable and it will remain, but it will have to change. That there's no way that 1,100 different institutions of higher learning can be under the same umbrella and make rules that apply to all. It, it just doesn't work. And I'm not sure even Division One, just taking basketball, having 360 Division One institutions competing against one another, we can have this mythical level playing field that we all we all strive for. Uh, I don't think it exists. You, you can't have a level playing field of 360 hamburger chains. It's not going to work. And uh, but um, I still think there's a role for the NCAA to play uh, to play in college sports, and that's governing the rules of play. Uh, I look at it maybe a little bit differently than some administrators. I look at all of these institutions that are under the NCAA umbrella as market competitors. They're all market competitors with one another. Uh, each conference is a market competitor with and against other conferences. They compete for talent, both on the floor, on the field, and off. Uh, they compete for, for media rights dollars. They compete certainly in every aspect of things. And when market competitors, uh, and it sounds bad, I don't mean this to sound sinister, but when they collude with one another to make rules that are going to restrict one segment of the business, they're going to run afoul of federal antitrust law. And the NCAA really had uh, an open runway for decades on this issue. And Mark, I'd, I'd be interested to see if you agree with this, but there are a lot of people right now that are saying this is the most transformational period in, in college sports history. I differ with that. I think it was in 1984. Uh, that was the last time that the NCAA was before the United States Supreme Court when some of the, the institutions sued the NCAA under the same theory that the players sued in the Alston case uh, most recently, and that was federal antitrust. Mm -hmm. And it seems bizarre, but I was in college then, and I was on an NCAA committee, probably the worst mistake the NCAA <laughs> ever made, is <laughs> let it, letting me behind the curtain and learn about policy and start asking policy questions. But uh, back then, Walter Byers was the executive director of the NCAA and, and ruled, again, this sounds sinister, ruled with a little bit with an iron fist. He was a benevolent dictator. And the NCAA used to tell schools how often they could be on television. They say, Oklahoma, you can be on twice. And that was back when right. game, game of the Week was literal. Yeah. <laughs> that was, <Right. laughs> that, that yeah. was it, man. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so in their, in their thought process, uh, gate receipts was what they were trying to protect, you know, having people come to the games. And they thought if we oversaturate the television market, people are going to stop coming to games and it's going to affect our bottom line. They, did, they didn't really didn't see, and how could they? They really didn't see the television uh, and media was where the real money was. And so the NCAA lost that case. And, and then the CFA started, the College Football Association. Chuck Ninas took Chuck it. Ninus. And, and it, yep. took, it took a while for the, the institutions and the conferences to figure it out. First couple years, they weren't sure, how do we sell these media rights? Do we bundle them together? Do we do it by conference? But they figured it out. And then revenues exploded. Then they started also. really exploding. Coaches' salaries started to explode. Attendance went up significantly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so the things that the NCAA said were going to happen didn't happen. 
uh, as far as interest and all that. Interest went way up that now that people could see it and follow it and all those things. But in that, in that Supreme Court opinion was some very interesting language that lawyers called dicta. It wasn't part of the ruling, but it was part of the part of the case. It was a recitation of facts, and in there, it's uh, the NCAA's fact statement was that uh, the athletes are amateurs and shall not be paid. And for decades, lower courts used that dicta and protected the NCAA's amateurism rules. So when the Alston case was decided in uh, the Ninth Circuit, uh, a lower court from the Supreme Court, the NCAA quote unquote lost the case. But all they really lost was they had to allow laptops to the players and they had to allow paid internships and all that. When I read that ruling, I was going, the NCAA won. And they didn't think they won. And uh, my perception was, and I've talked to several of the people at the time uh, within the structure, they did not want to be told what to do by the court system. So the NCAA took the case up to the U.S. Supreme, uh, US Supreme Court. And I thought it was probably 50-50 that they'd win. And they got crushed. They lost nine to nothing, including that concurring opinion from Justice Kavanaugh that said the NCAA is not above the law. And now they're on the hook for antitrust violations anytime somebody sues them. And that's why, no, that's why the NCAA is not doing anything right now. They're not passing any legislation. They're not trying to rein in NIL, the transfer portal. They're afraid any move that they make is going to put them back in court and they're going to lose an antitrust case, which – and people don't, don't think about this very often, but they lose more of these cases. Money damages are going to come with those, and antitrust cases triple. are triple. They call them triple damages. So th th if, they get a, if they get hit by that, say they lose a million dollars, it's going to be three million. And uh, it, it's going to be, you know, th there's a lot coming down the pike legally at the NCAA right now, and they don't know what to do, and they're going to Congress saying, please, please bail us out of this. Give us federal legislation that allows us to violate federal antitrust law with your blessing. We don't have much time, Jay, but uh, based on what you've said, uh, based on Transfer Portal NIL, as it applies to the NCAA, it's going to be same as it ever was for the foreseeable future. There will be no parameters put in place, correct? Well, nor in my view should there be. What, what, there's no other spending cap or parameter with regard to any, anything in, in college sports. There's no facilities spending cap. There's no coaches' salary spending cap. There's no cap on uh, you know, what they can do with travel, all these different things. The only cap there is is on players. And right now players are allowed NIL uh, so they can make money outside of the university, but they're not allowed to make any money from the university. Hmm. And ultimately where I see this going uh, in, in my limited crystal ball is I think the cleanest, easiest way for college sports to operate is for schools to sign players to contracts. You sign them to a contract, mm -hmm. two-year deal with an option for a third. Why couldn't a player have a buyout? Sign them for a two-year deal and say, here's a scholarship plus $100,000, whatever, but say $100,000 a year to a really good player, but say, but you're going to have a $100,000 buyout if you decide to leave before the conclusion of the contract. Same as you would have with a coach. And that would bring some legal... Uh, sanity back to the system because the NCAA has said forever that uh, athletes are students who just happen to be athletes and students to be treated like any other student. No other student is told they can't be an employee. No other student is told they can't make money outside of this, that, or the other. Athletes have been accepted, and they're a, they're a limited class and the only limited class in the college sports space, not just college athletics, but you know, my daughter was an artist in college, and she's a professional artist, has been a professional artist since she was a teenager. She made a lot of money while she was in school, and she was celebrated for it. 
if she were an athlete doing that, she would have been declared ineligible and yeah. looked upon as some sort of petty criminal. And uh, and I'm Jeez. glad those days are over, that nobody's asking a player now, where'd you get that right, car? Who paid for that watch? Like, finally, we're out of that business, w- which has been a positive. You ever think that eventually, and I remember back, I'm older than probably everybody except for Steve Courtney, who's 100. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the NFL had a contract dispute a long time ago, and, they, and Ed Garvey said we, should, we wanted 55% of the gross. They wanted to put all the money in one pile, give the players 55%, and then the owners could take it, whatever. Do you ever see that this thing coming to a point where you just put all the money in a pile, percentage goes to players, and then the, the colleges get the other, and then they can divide it however they want. They can do whatever they want with it, but you have that one big pie, and you split it. And, that, Jay, I just want to say, because of Kenny's seven-minute question, <laughs> uh, you've got one minute to respond. So. That, Kenny, that's what the NCAA is trying to avoid. When people talk about salary caps in other sports, they say, hey, the salary cap in the NBA or the NFL, those are collectively bargained. And the players get 50% in the NBA. They get 50% of basketball-related revenue. The NCAA doesn't want to do that. Right now, these players, relative to their value, are cheap in the NIL space. They're cheap. You go the collective bargaining route, then they're going to be expensive. Uh, because they're worth a lot more than just a commercial here and there and and something from a collective. Uh, If we can get to contracts, then we'll have a recognized market. Everybody will know essentially what's being paid, and and just like they do in the legal market where I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, all the firms, they don't collude, but they know what the other firms are paying. They may pay a little bit more to get somebody, maybe a little bit less, uh, but you know what the market is, and and the participants that are accepting jobs know what the market is. That's what we need in college sports. In my view, you need to know what the market is. But we're not going to get it by uh, having everybody list what they're making in, in the NIL space. That's not going to work, in my view. And nor should it. Like, wh- why should I know what some kid is making, what some, some play, I call them kid, they're infantilizing them, <laughs> what some young adult is making uh, in, in his or her own business dealings. That's none of my business. That's their business. You know, w- we trust these players to choose their own doctors if they want a second opinion. But we don't trust them to make their own decisions with with money and have choose their own agent and have their own lawyer. Uh, that doesn't make any sense to me. It never has. Jay, tremendous conversation, yes. as yes. we all thought it would be. So happy to have you here with us tonight. Uh, thank you very much for the comments and enjoy the rest of it. Honored to be here. Thank you for having me. And uh, hopefully we'll have a microphone for the toe-to-toe with Izzo and you later. He may take a swing at me, but but it'll hit me in the knee. That's the good news. (laughs) Jay Billis from ESPN joining us here on the Album Show on 760 WJR. WJR traffic and weather first. 